0: Well, over the last 10 years, I've been mulling over this quote, this T.S. Eliot quote. It says, we shall not cease from exploration. And at the end of our exploring will be, we will arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Now, I'm no T.S. Eliot expert. Will Vakurevich, over here he is. He introduced me to T.S. Eliot. <laughs> But ever since I read this quote, I've been thinking about it because I think it's the perfect commentary of the last 10 years of my life. You see, I grew up in Tempe and Chandler. I grew up in this area, but I don't think I ever saw the place where I lived. I grew up viewing this place as the junior varsity of places. And one day I will graduate and go on to some important city to do some important thing, to meet with important people and and get away from this place. And by the age of 24 years old, I had a list of goals and a lot of those goals had been fulfilled. I was living in the capital of Turkey. I was working as a basketball scout, just watching basketball all the time. I was there um, to participate in God's mission and proclaim the gospel in a place that was 99% Muslim, felt like it was really important work, I think it was. I, was. I had started some nonprofits that were focused on peacemaking, and I was bouncing around from country to country and city to city, I was wearing suits and stuff. <laughs> and. At that time, I probably would have described my life as uh, being on mission with God. But the reality was, is I was on a mission for significance. I was on a mission to make much of myself and to satisfy some void I had to, to be liked and known and thought of as important. And we came back to the US for a while and my daughter, and was actually diagnosed with autism. And the doctor said that if my daughter was going to flourish, that what she needed is she needed stability, and I wasn't providing stability, that I would need to sink my roots into this place where I live and to actually care for her. Now, I wish that I could honestly say that my heart was filled with compassion and I was thinking about her, but I'm ashamed to say that my first thought was how this was gonna affect me. And that I was gonna to have to step away from some of these things that I loved. And so that was about the time that I would say I actually got to know my daughter. We started going in the backyard and growing gardens together. And you know she would kick over some of my good work sometimes, but we spent hours and hours in the yard together. And one day I'm out there praying with her and I realized that what she is doing is she is God's instrument to show me what God was calling me to in that moment. And that our work of gardening together was a physical analogy of what God was calling us to, of sinking roots deep into a place, Tempe, that I had overlooked my whole life. Sinking my roots deep into a family, my wife and my daughter that I had overlooked, sinking my roots deep into Christ who I had overlooked in my pursuit of significance for myself. And my daughter, being the tour guide that she is of the kingdom of God, was the one that showed me that the very place where I stand, the the streets that I grew up on of rural and Apache and Broadway, that these are sacred places and that these are the very fields of God's mission that I had overlooked my entire life. Now today, as we open up to John chapter 4, verses 27 through 42, the setting of where we're looking is a a city called Sichar. It's a Samaritan village that was overlooked. As a matter of fact, I tried to do research into the city, and all you can really find about it—they don't even know exactly where it was—all you could find about it is that it was, you know, it was just on the way to something else. It was an obscure town that nobody thought about, that the disciples, it wasn't even on their radar— And they thought that they were probably just passing through. But what we see in this text is that a sacred, holy, powerful moment happens when Jesus meets with this woman at the well and reveals that he is the Christ. And then she goes on to tell her whole village about Jesus saying, I think I found the Messiah. And the whole village starts moving in and coming toward Jesus. And then he's sitting there with his disciples, and the disciples miss it. They're overlooking what God is doing in that moment, and they're concerned about other things. They're concerned about fish sandwiches. (laughs) So we're gonna look in in John 4. A few weeks ago, Josh covered the first half of this encounter with the Samaritan woman, and I'm gonna talk about the second half today. as I refer to her, I'm going to call her Linnell because it doesn't give her a name in there, and I just feel like her name is Linnell. <laughs> That's my mom's name. She, you know, she feels like she's my mom. She's kind of spunky, has a some some history. So, Linnell, the Samaritan. So, um, what we're going to see in this passage is that Linnell is overlooked by the disciples and that Jesus is going to reorient their vision and show them what is happening in that moment, what is happening in that town, and how God's mission is breaking out in the most unexpected place for them. And we're gonna see that Jesus, number one, has a hunger for mission. Number two, that he is extending an invitation to mission. And number three is that there are surprises within mission. So let's start with number one, hunger for mission. In our cynical world, we can often see Jesus as cold and detached, that he doesn't care about the things that you care about. But what we see in this passage is that Jesus's mission isn't just to check off a task, but he deeply cares. He has deep desire for the mending of the broken and messed up things in this world. In verse 31, we see this. It says, meanwhile, while the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat. So Jesus had sent them to go get some food. They show up, and all of a sudden, the Samaritan's there. They're judging Linnell. They're judging Jesus. It it, it says that they were wondering why he's sitting with the woman. He's missing out on the salvation that's happening in that moment, and they are focused on fish sandwiches. And then it goes on to say, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? So Jesus is confusing them like he does. He'll throw stuff out. I got food you know nothing about. They're like, did did she bring that Samaritan hummus? And we went all that way to go get the fish sandwiches? But Jesus is throwing the categorical confusion to get the disciples thinking, to draw their attention and to draw their awareness to what's happening in that moment. And then he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In other words, Jesus has something that is more satisfying to him than bodily hunger, that he craves that that nourishes him more than food, and it is to participate in and to complete the mission that he's been sent on, that the Father has sent him to do. He craves it. That is his feast. And so we might ask, what is that mission? Now, throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, you see different images that are being used to describe God's mission. Sometimes it's restoration. Sometimes it's reconciliation. Sometimes it's salvation. But what all of these have in common is that they are about the recovery of all that was lost in the fall. All that was lost because of sin's entrance into the world. And so God's mission is about reconciling a sinful people back to himself through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus knows that's his mission. But it also has a social dynamic. It's about reconciling to each other former enemies who, who, who would otherwise not be caught together, but Jesus brings them together and to mend the social fabric that gets torn because of sin. God's mission is also has a physical component as well, that the very physical wounds that we know exist in the world are, are to be mended by Christ. That the, the cancer cells that are growing will one day be put into remission completely. The, the pain that you feel in your knee right now. These are, this is what Christ has come to do through his life, death, and resurrection to recover all that was lost in the fall. And in this passage, the word, the image that's used is the word of salvation meaning a comprehensive rescue of a world desperately in need of being rescued. And it's interesting that Jesus doesn't just say, they don't just come up to him and they say, hey, Jesus, eat some food. And he's like, no, I gotta go do this task. But he uses this beautiful metaphor saying that his food is to do the work and the will of the Father. He craves it. Now, as a man who is 285 pounds, I feel like I'm somewhat of an expert on food cravings. Like, I feel like I can speak to this with a level of expertise. But there's actually a family in our congregation who's even more of an expert of doing crazy things for some food, so I'll throw them up there. That's the Hanson family. Every year or whenever a new Chick-fil-A opens, they dress up like cows, and then they, they go stand in line at Chick-fil-A, and apparently if you dress like a cow and you stand in line for a long time, they give you free Chick-fil-A. Now, there's not a chicken sandwich in the world that would make me do something like that, but they crave that Chick-fil-A sandwich so much that they're willing to do that. I mean, I might dress up like a, like a chicken to get some brisket or something like that, but, but definitely not a chicken sandwich, right? And what you get from this metaphor is that Jesus has a craving, that Jesus' brisket is to do the will of the Father. Jesus's brisket is to see a broken and distorted world reconciled and made right. He didn't dress up like a cow. He took on the fullness of human flesh. He didn't just stand in line to get get to uh, uh, the front of the, the cash register, but he stepped into the line that was ultimately leading to the cross where he would not just pay a few bucks, but he would pay his whole life dying on our behalf so that we could come and be made right with him. And in his death, In his willingness to be torn apart on our behalf so that we could be reconciled to God, we see a God who's not just checking something off the list, but he is craving the salvation that should be broken out into the world. He's showing the disciples, do you see what just happened with the Samaritan woman? That is my feast, that is my brisket. Now, why does this matter? Why do we need to know that Jesus is actually passionate about accomplishing his mission? Because I think in a world steeped in cynicism like ours, we can often begin to think that Jesus is cold, detached, that he doesn't care about the things that we care about, and sometimes he just throws us a bone if we pray enough. Sometimes we think that we are the ones who care about our spouse with mental health struggles, but Jesus doesn't care. That we are the ones who actually care about our friends who have turned away from the faith, but Jesus, he doesn't care. We think we are the ones who care about unborn children and refugees and people who are facing eviction. We think we are the ones who care about the unreached people groups. And we know the right Christian answer that Jesus is the one who cares. But if we're being honest with ourselves, sometimes we think that we are at the center of it and we are the only one passionate about it. I've learned that when I pray, I need to be honest with God. And there was a moment this summer that was just brutal. I'm sure you know some of those moments. And... There were a lot of people in the church who were suffering. My daughter wasn't sleeping well. She was struggling because of the challenges of of the COVID stuff. And there's only one place that I can get a really good sleep in Arizona. And that is a rock that's right next to Christopher Creek. I just go lay on the rock and I sleep. And the only thing that interrupts me are the people who think that some guy died by the river. Um, (laughs) But it's a great place to sleep. And so I'm on my way, driving up to Payson, and you know the windy road, and I'm just praying, and I'm pouring my heart out to God, and tears are running down my face, and I feel like I've worked myself raw, and I just start yelling. Sometimes this happens when I pray. I'm yelling at God, and I'm saying, why don't you care? Why don't you show up for my daughter?" Why don't you show up for the folks in this church? I feel like I'm doing everything and you are just not showing up. And I was surprised by the words that came out of my mouth and what they were were revealing about my heart. And in that moment, as I'm kind of swerving through these winding roads and tears are coming down my face, I'm pretty sure people were like, I want to get away from that car. I feel like Jesus is redirecting me toward the cross. And he's saying, I showed up. I showed up with more than you showed up. You lost a few nights of sleep, but I gave all of my blood. And it's behind that is, a, is not a dispassionate Jesus who's checking off a list to accomplish a task that his father gave him to do, but one who hungers, who craves, who wants to see the salvation and the restoration enter into this broken world more than you and I could ever. Jesus said to him to them, "My brisket is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus deeply cares. He hungers for his mission. But not only does he hunger, he also invites us into his mission. So what we see is number two, that Jesus is inviting his disciples to step into the mission, to refocus on the mission. Jesus isn't just passionate about his mission, but he's compassionate in the fact that he's taking his disciples and reorienting them to see what's happening all around them. They're missing it, and Jesus mercifully is showing it to them. So what we see in verse 35, it says, do you not say there are four months then comes the harvest? So Jesus is quoting a well-known agrarian proverb. Doesn't seem like that much of a proverb to me. It's like not that profound. He just says, you plant a seed, and in four months there's a harvest. But nevertheless... That was probably a well-known proverb around the time. Um, And he says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. And as he's saying that, he's redirecting their eyes. Now, in that moment, they probably would have been able to look out and see farm fields. And from the well where they were standing, they would be able to see hordes of people coming from the Samaritan village to find Jesus. After having heard the testimony of Linnell, they're compelled and they're coming to to see Jesus. And, And Jesus is looking at them saying, take your eyes off the sandwiches. Look at the harvest all around. It says, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for the harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering the fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. He's redirecting their attention away from lunch and directing it toward the harvest. This overlooked town of Sikhar, this overlooked people of the Samaritans, the folks that the disciples couldn't even see. They were just going to pass right through. Jesus redirects their attention and says, "The harvest is here." And it's the imagery here is really beautiful. It's uh, when it says that the sower and the reaper rejoice together. Jesus is likely drawing on imagery from from Amos nine where there's this image of God's restoration being so thorough and so complete and so abundant that the farm workers are colliding into each other. One person will sow a seed and put it in the ground, and the harvest comes up so quickly that the harvester's like running into and bumping into the sower. And, And he's pointing out that this is happening in that moment. In that moment, The the Samaritans are coming. That woman is coming. And Jesus has proclaimed the gospel to them. He says in verse 38 I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Restoration is breaking out, and Jesus is restoring the calling of the disciples. They're distracted. What are they distracted by? Well, they're distracted by at least two things that I see in this passage. Two things that were really important, but they had become so enamored with that they were missing out what was happening underneath their feet. What are those two things? They were distracted by cultural controversies and making ends meet, meeting basic needs. Two things that are massively important. Massively important. But if they become the only thing, you miss out. They were focused on Jesus. They were judging Jesus for sitting with the Samaritan woman. And what that was about were the big controversies of the day about how Jewish people and Samaritan folks should interact with each other and how men and women should interact with each other. And, and when they show up to Jesus, that's what's on their mind. And then immediately, they start focusing on the basic needs, saying, hey, we got to eat lunch. Jesus, eat. It says they urged him to eat. Now, those are important things, but, it, but doesn't that resonate with us? I know that there are a lot of folks that I've spoken to who their whole days since probably March, have looked like you work all day long with your, with your kids and w- with your employment, and you're in a bazillion Zoom calls all day long, and you grind and you grind and you grind, and then at the end of the day, you cap off the day with doom scrolling about the various opinions of the things that are going on in the world. And the cultural issues are important. Meeting the basic needs is important. So if you tomorrow are going to write me an email and say that I said it wasn't important, just delete it. It is important. But sometimes things can get so big in our minds that they can suppress the other areas of life, the other aspects that are a part of God's mission. And I think for us, it's important for us to look around and say that there are people in our neighborhoods, our neighbors, that we may need to fix our eyes on. There are, there are issues in our city that you walk past and drive past every day that need to be engaged. There are people sitting in our living room called our family that probably need some attention right now. One of the most important ways we participate in God's mission is by displaying and proclaiming the gospel to our children. And so I wonder if Jesus in this moment isn't doing with us what he was doing with the disciples, calling some of us to say, you've been looking at some important things, but there are other aspects of the mission that are, have been overlooked. So step back into the labor. Join me with the, in the mission that I hunger for. Now, if you need some on-ramps, if you've been like, I've just been myopic for a while, how can I step in? I'm gonna give you three, three ways, just tangible ways. One is that we have affordable Christmas coming up, and that's gonna have a lot of opportunities for us to collectively serve the city. And Will's got some really good ideas cooking up uh, about ways that we can love neighbors who are about to be evicted and make sure that they do not end up homeless. So he's gonna give that to you in the next few weeks. Step into that. The other way is we've started something called prayer and action groups. And this emerged from the reality that so many of us, have realized that we've been doing a lot of talking about stuff, but not actually engaging with things. And so prayer and action groups are, are groups that are focused on a specific issue. We'll have one focused on the sanctity of life, the other one focused on criminal justice, another one focused on homelessness, and others may, may uh, be started as well. But with those, that's not your easy volunteerism. That's a one-year commitment to deeply understand an issue, deeply, not just the cliches, deeply understand it. Be fervent in prayer, and then actually have a plan to act and to engage. So if you want to step into that, we've got ways to sign up online. And then thirdly, you know, we always talk about all of life is all for Jesus. And the most important or most obvious setting for mission is our own work and our neighborhoods, the normal stuff of life. And so in January, we're gonna have a process where you can enter into the process and pray with some folks and be coached up to really identify an area of missional focus and to have a plan in that. So those are three ways that you can join in, but probably it's more than those three ways. It's whatever the spirit is stirring in you right now when it says you have not paid attention to this thing that is important to God's mission. reengage, refocus on that, because just as Jesus called the disciples back to the harvest, he's calling us as well. And then finally, number three, it's the surprise of mission. that Those who are engaged in participating in God's mission will always see some surprises that blow their mind, and the same is true for the disciples in this moment. When they woke up, they could not have imagined Revival breaking out in Sychar. They could not have imagined the Gentiles or the, the Samaritans, their religious, political, ethnic enemies at the time, becoming their very brothers and sisters. And so in verse 39, it says many Samaritans from that town believed in him, they believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. Her testimony being, he told me all that I ever did. See the simplicity of that? This woman has been a follower of Christ for like 20 minutes, and now God is using her for revival, and her whole message is, let me just tell you what Jesus did for me. And If you think, oh, I've got to get it all together and have all my ducks in a row to participate in his mission, listen to Linnell. She's not doing it that way. Verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to, stay. they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that he indeed is the savior of the world. Revival's breaking out. The surprises of that day are incredible. And there's some beauty to that term, savior of the world, that's being used. You know, now it kind of sounds like Christianese, right? Savior of the world. Like we throw that around in like 60% of Christmas worship songs, right? But at that time, it would have been a more generic term. It was used not just in the Jewish Christian vernacular, but it was also used in other ways. Greek deities were referred to as the saviors of the world, like Zeus or uh, Roman emperors, uh, these powerful politicians. They were called the savior of the world. And it's a broad term that has the connotation of of identifying a rescuer who is worthy of our adoration and our allegiance. And so what's happening in this village is that there are two big surprises. There's the surprise of salvation and the surprise of reconciliation. The surprise of salvation is happening in that these folks, Samaritans, who started out the day as enemies of the disciples, are now coming to faith. It's incredible, the the parallel of what's happening here is that the disciples or the Samaritans are the ones who see Jesus and who worship Jesus and who wanna listen to Jesus. And the disciples are the one who are just telling Jesus to eat something. There's a surprise of salvation that if we keep our eyes open, God saves and rescues people that you never even would have imagined. I have this dynamic that happens once a month here, one of the benefits of growing up in one one place, where somebody will show up from my past at the church, from high school or when I was a kid, and we'll look at each other and we'll be like, what are you doing here? (laughs) Because neither one of us would have assumed that the other person was gonna be rescued by Christ. And what we see in the midst of this season is that there are hordes of people whose lives are being transformed as they encounter Christ. And I love hearing these stories. I hear them all of the time. And a lot of times those of us who've been believers for the longest time, we're kind of cynically griping about masks or something. But right in our midst, there's salvation breaking out. Will we have the eyes open to see the surprise? But secondly, there's the surprise of reconciliation. And it's subtle in this text, but it's beautiful. Jewish and some people and Samaritan people never would have been caught dead feasting together. But the Samaritans are so infatuated with Jesus they, that they ask Jesus to come and to stay with them and have a slumber party. <laughs> he stays two days And the disciples and Jesus, they're sitting there and they are feasting on that Samaritan hummus. They're receiving Samaritan hospitality. And because Christ is the one who rescued them all, these former enemies are sitting together and are around the table. They had nothing in common, but because Jesus was everything to them, they now had everything in common. And a moment of beautiful reconciliation is breaking out in the midst of an environment where no Jews and Samaritans would have been caught dead together. And if someone would have come and looked into what was happening in that moment, in that feast, they would have only concluded that there is something unique and distinct about the one who's at the center of the table Jesus. And as we push forward into 2021, as we push forward in the days to come, one of the most powerful witnesses that we can have is if this place can be a place of reconciliation, where people who lean in all these different ways, who would never be caught together, can actually come together because Christ is the center. It's gonna need repentance. It's going to need putting off the allegiance to other idols and ideologies, but it is going to create a beautiful table that bears witness to Christ, a surprise to a world where the social fabric is ripping apart. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you have amassed so much cynicism that you're like, I don't think so. I'm not giving my heart over to hopeful things again. I don't know if I actually believe that Jesus craves salvation and and reconciliation. I don't know if it's worth it to step into the harvest. I don't know if I can actually see those surprises because you know what? I wasn't in that Samaritan village. And that Samaritan village is not the story of my life. I'm seeing some messed up stuff. Some of us have come to believe that the world is so crooked and all the leaders are so messed up and uh, we're just going to ride this out, have a few friends and watch some Netflix on the way. We become cynical and hard. One of my mentors, Steve Garber, says, in the strange calculus of history and of the human heart, the subtle temptation of cynicism confounds the best efforts to common good. How do you deal with that cynicism? You wish that you could see the Samaritan village and what happened there. That would change it. But that's not the only thing that John the apostle saw. The same one who wrote the gospel of John was the same one who wrote the book of Revelation. And he, and he, in the end, he catches a vision that gives us hope even in the most dire, even in the most messed up of circumstances. His vision is of heaven where there's someone who's calling out and saying, who's worthy to open the scroll? And it was the scroll representing the events of history. In other words, who's worthy to handle the messed up stuff of history? And all the angels and all, all the interesting creatures that are in the book of Revelation, they're scouring the earth and they can find no one worthy, no politician, no pastor, no parent, no author, no nothing who's worthy to handle the messed up stuff of history. And John, desperate, starts crying and weeping. And then the intention of heaven it drifts to this lamb this lamb who's been slain, who sits on the throne and all of heaven breaks out in song declaring the worthiness of this lamb, Jesus, to open the scroll, to handle the messed up things in history. And as the book of Revelation unfolds, what you see is that lamb is the one who is worthy, who is healing, who is making things right. And that what happened in that Samaritan village that was overlooked is the destiny of all of creation. In an obscure Samaritan village, Jesus brought salvation to hordes of people. And in the end, he's going to draw people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Those who repent and believe in him. In that village, he brought restoration to a lonely and shunned woman, restoring her place back into the community. And in the end, the worthy lamb is gonna wipe away the tears from our eyes and give a place for all who are lonely and disconnected from people who truly love them. We see in that village a beautiful reconciliation of former enemies who've become family. And where Jesus the lamb is taking history is that what happened in that village is gonna happen in all of creation when the enemies who formerly hated each other come together and are reconciled to Christ and reconciled to one another. So in the meantime, as we live in the already not yet, as we don't see what we wanna see, in that Samaritan village. We look with hope until the day that Jesus restores all things. Jesus made salvation grow out of the soil of Samaria. And what he's doing in that that village, he's gonna do in all the earth, not just Sikar, but Tempe, Marrakesh, Jerusalem, you name it including the very soil that is under your feet in this very moment. Let's pray.